0: Welcome to Show Your Work, our podcast about our obsession with work. How was your work week? Fast. My God. Like, I… Listen, I had the pleasure of calling work a visit to (laughs) the Wizarding World of Harry Potter this weekend. Oh, yes. Yes. Poor me. Very Um, poor you. Yeah, that I worked on Sunday, but part of my day's work was at the Wizarding World, which… Man, I appreciate the level of work that went into putting that park together. What,
1: what surprised you the most? So, uh, I've been yammering about it for, I think I went once. Did I only go once? Yes. And boasting about how great it was. I feel like you've gone twice. But anyway, I, you went last year, like not too long ago. That's right. That was, yeah. And that's yeah. It, yes.
0: So, I went when they opened the first phase, which was Hogsmeade and the castle. Um, that was a few years ago, but I haven't yet been to the second phase, which is Diagon Alley. Which is a game changer. Let's get real. Well, for them too. Like, so it's not just Diagon Alley, but obviously the Hogwarts Express that goes from Hogsmeade to Diagon Alley.
1: Well, actually or goes back from King's Cross London. That's right. Well, I mean, in terms of the order in which they made the park. Okay, yes, but if we're talking about the order of the actual fantasy okay, layout, okay, okay. We're talking. I was talking about
0: construction, but fine, fine. Um, <laughs> and I, I mean, it's astonishing the level of detail. I was with someone who's been three times before. Oh wow! And so she has one of those interactive wands, where you can go and stand at any point like, throughout the park or throughout both parks and you do a spell and the lights come on or the bird disappears or
1: whatever. Like a fountain sprays at you. Yes. It was awesome.
0: Um, and, oh, my God, the money. Because I didn't know – I mean, I was there as a guest of the park because we were covering – we were promoting the park. Um, so, yes, that was my privilege. I'm sorry to have to say that because a lot of people – have to pay two park fees because, of course, Hogsmeade is um, in one section of or one park, like an Island Adventure Walk or whatever it's called, and then um, and then Diagon Alley is in the Universal s- section,
1: right? And which, there are two different fees. But nobody knew this. I didn't know that they were two different parks. And yeah, they have a park hopper pass or whatever it is, and. You know, living in Canada, we're less well versed in theme parks generally than uh, the bajillion that are in the American South. But yeah, it's a lot of money. It's a lot of my favorite is when you get there and you see a family with four kids and they're all wearing robes in their house color. Yes, and the robes cost one hundred and nine dollars a piece, and you're like, okay, they haven't eaten 117 lunch. One seventeen now. Oh, pardon
0: me. <laughs> <laughs> like whatever the inflation on the robes Wait,
1: is. Did you buy a robe? Is
0: that what you're telling me? I did not buy a robe. What'd you buy? I bought um two sweatshirts, a hoodie, and a tank. Uh-huh. So and I declared it all at customs. Um I was $80 over the allotted $200 Canadian that you were allowed when you were gone for 24
1: hours. What, did you do the conversion? <laughs> I did. Oh, my God. This is, <laughs> I can't take this level of brown nosing at the airport.
0: <laughs> okay.
1: <laughs> Let's get to work.
0: Anyway, uh, yeah, more thoughts perhaps interspersed during the show mm-hmm. about my visit to the Wizard or the, um, Diagon Alley. Um, but, okay, so I… Even though as much as I love Harry Potter and I could have stayed in the park much longer, I needed to book it back to my hotel room so that I could turn on the HBO and watch the series finale of Big Little Lies. I almost missed it as it was because these parks are huge. To get back to your hotel is like a journey in and of itself. Okay, anyway. all right.
1: You, okay, the parks. Um, Yeah, you know, the finale was something else, wasn't it? Because first of all, when this all started seven weeks ago, uh, I didn't think it was going to take as much hold as it did. It took an enormous, enormous pop culture hold. Uh, Somebody pointed out that uh, Vulture wrote 11 articles about it between last night and this morning. Uh, It is amazing how much this took hold. And the other thing, of course, is... You read the book. I read the book. Um, I found it in my Amazon orders today. It was late in 2015 that I bought it. So we knew what was going to happen. And yet. Yeah.
0: I think number one, I, I love, I mean, Vulture's obsession with it, I love, obviously. Like, I mean, they had so many exclusives too. I feel like so many cast members spoke to, Vulture had, I think, interviews with Nicole Kidman, John Mark Vallet. I think they did an interview with um, Robin uh, Weigart, mm-hmm. who plays the therapist. Scarsgard, I think. Scarsgard, maybe even Reese. I, don't quote me on that. But they had access um, and they
1: wanted access,
0: meaning that they were like, hey, let's push for this. And well. you could tell their interest level.
1: Oh, yes, but let's also, to go the other way, uh, when I was last in Florida, uh, the stars were all on the cover of Elle that month, you know, five different covers. Yeah. They have done all kinds of press. They are available to you. There's been something new every few days. The Mm -hmm. last three weeks, I feel like, have been the prom tour of Laura Dern. Oh, yeah. Every time you open up, uh, you know, any sort of outlet, there's a Laura Dern exclusive, uh, including one yesterday that I think was in The Hollywood Reporter, where uh, it was an interview with Laura Dern. Oh, but she happened to be in the golf cart beside Reese Witherspoon. So, like, you yeah. might get an unauthorized interjection from Reese Witherspoon. So, it is happening. Like, they are here for it. Everybody is in symbiosis for this show. And so the end was happening and it was halfway through the episode and nothing had happened and we knew what was going to happen in a way. I was feeling, I don't know, nervous is not quite the right word. I was, I wanted to see some fireworks. I was feeling a little anxious that it was going to be rushed, that it was not yeah. all going to fit in. Uh And I know that, you know, I know you and I were talking about it, so I know that maybe you had some similar thoughts.
0: Well, we were texting back and forth, and at one point you had texted me, and you're like, "Um, there's half an hour left, and we're not even, like, uh, Trivia Night hasn't really even
1: started yet. I think at that point, Celeste and Perry hadn't even shown up Yeah, for there to be a problem. So both of us were like, what is
0: going to happen? Are we going to breakneck the last 20 minutes? Like… I mean, and that's what you have to expect, right? When you know that the big thing happens at trivia night,
1: the big thing
0: being... And of course, since we read the book, we know that in the book, they do other things after the big thing.
1: But not really. Like, it. yeah, they do, but also it all kind of comes tumbling down in about 25 pages. One of the things I realized as we're talking is that even though I think that the... All of the program obviously was structured for people who were not book readers. I just realized that the way they structured the last episode, that's for the book readers. That's for the people who don't know what's going to happen. How many musical performances were there? Three? Yeah. That's for us. That's to keep us going, okay, now, right? Yeah. Okay, now. No, you fuckers who think you know because you read the book. It's drawing it out and drawing it out, and even when the climax happens… When Perry gets his just desserts, even if you don't know, they really underplay it at first to the point where I was like, huh, what? And then they go back and visit it and do it differently, but exactly the same way as is done in the book. And that is, you know, it's artistic, it's wonderful, it's all those things, but that's not just because it's artistic and wonderful. That's to keep book snobs who have already read it guessing. And also, as
0: soon as it happens, though, I really like the way they kind of honored the book people by using Zoe Kravitz's acting in place of words and
1: explanation. So let's be clear about what you're talking about. The Zoe Kravitz character, Bonnie, in the book, we find out moments before she sort of gives the fatal push, she screams, you, you know, they see, we see what you do. That's right. Meaning that she knows what's going on. And later we find out why she knows. That's right. That she has a backstory, she has a history with domestic violence, she recognizes signs or saw them in the moment. That's right. Kind of thing. But, again, yeah, television is a visual medium, so we get to see her experience those things, feel those things, whether or not we need to know the word-for-word explanation behind them. We don't, because it's all there.
0: Well, and I, I think I wrote about this a couple of weeks ago, referencing you and what you have taught me or at least explain to me along the way in terms of screenwriting, whether it's movie or television, is show is always better than tell. Mm -hmm. Um, And I can't remember what article I wrote this in, but anyway, the point is, is that, yeah, when you have these actors on your cast, you don't have to fill in all that exposition. Um, The look on her face when she first notices at Trivia Night the way Perry is handling Celeste… That's experience. That was all in that
1: face. That, that face. <laughs> and then later, arguably the most important shot uh, in a series of important shots. Oh, yeah. Uh, is the one that you and I both commented on. And that is a shot of uh, Madeline, Reese Witherspoon's Madeline, and Bonnie, uh, Zoe Kravitz, who have been at odds because they are… What's the word for what they are? They're like step-parents-in-law or something. Right. Uh, They, you know, they've both been married to the same man and have been petty and have been arguing and so forth. And they have that moment and they are forehead to forehead, just sort of in the aftermath. And you realize that they're understanding everything, that they know everything, maybe even... You realize that Madeline understands, in retrospect, all the things she didn't understand about Bonnie. She knows her much better now, or in a rounder way.
0: But all of Madeline's protectiveness and her fierceness, what she showed Jane, for example, and has denied Bonnie, all of that in that moment was, oh, wait a minute, now you are under
1: my protection. That's right. Nobody fucks with Bonnie but me.
0: That's right. That's right, and as you mentioned, I mean, both of us texted at the same time for that scene, the forehead to forehead. You mentioned even the um, even the eyelashes were in motion together, mm-hmm. in sync, like in sync. Mm-hmm. Um, and that whole scene, what did you think of it being cut around the ocean?
1: I mean I thought that was amazing. You know, yeah. the the imagery is not subtle. No. Um, you know, it you can't control it. It's yeah, powerful and and unpredictable, but I thought it was amazing. I thought I really thought it was powerful. And you had really really strong feelings uh about the the sort of sentiment of the whole thing. Did that surprise you? It I it didn't surprise me because I knew
0: where we were going. Like not because I read the book, but I really appreciate the groundwork that they had laid in the six previous episodes. Like, I, for example, really connected with that scene of the three of them running on the beach. hmm hmm That was, and I, I think I wrote about that, too. I, I think I said, you know, this is where this will lead. Like, this is, I know that when they give me a scene like that, or even the scene in the car between Madeline and Celeste after they fought for Avenue Q at, like, the mayor's office or whatever... Um, I think that, to me, those were the teasers, the appetizers. Like, hang on to this scene because we're going to reward you even bigger by the time this is over. So I wasn't surprised, and yet just because you're not surprised doesn't, doesn't mean that you're not profoundly moved. Mm-hmm. I, I think for me, what was so wonderful is that I think that m- most women, if not all women can recognize in those last two minutes what that is, what that feels like when you ride or die for your friends. And I think, too, when you can say about your friends, God
1: damn, she's annoying, and yet you turn up and you show up when you're needed. Yeah. I mean, I don't disagree, and I think it's all the more powerful for the fact that uh, it was done with so few words. I got really emotional too, but it was for a slightly different reason because I have been so frustrated as, as I always am frustrated and grumpy when I say something's good and people malign it in the press and then later uh, come back and say, oh yeah, I guess so. Uh, I think I sulked at length on Laney Gossip to this effect about Buffy last week. Right. But… I have been so frustrated by the critics who have referred to it as, uh, you know, a show about the, the concerns of moms at a, at a high-end school, the, the petty bitchiness of blah, 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 blah. Even in an otherwise wonderful article involved, well, the petty concerns of bitchy women being bitchy. I find this really frustrating because there's this idea that you can't tell women's stories, that they are not universal enough. That a man's story about going on a quest for a thing or a whatever, or fatherhood, or a I don't know, a lost jewel or something, is somehow meth <laughs> is going to reach everybody. Uh huh. But a woman's story that is domestic as the incredible television critic uh, at the New Yorker, Emily Nussbaum called it, is somehow less important because it is smaller in geographic scope. I don't know. When it's just as important, it's just as powerful. And there are a lot of people calling for, uh, there are a lot of people calling for, oh, there should be a second season. It would be amazing. It should be this. It should be that. But you're shaking your head. You feel the way I do. We, we need to leave it here. But part of the reason everybody's crying out for this is because we don't have this. We don't have a show about the dynamics between grown women that are complex and interesting and affected by big things and affected by small things and that can change based on the very real elements in their lives that are no less important. Then, yeah, then when, you know, a, a bubonic plague breaks out in a hospital, which I assume has happened on a hospital show in the last year and a half. I don't know. I would take it further. I mean, I know
0: what you're saying because this is something you've been saying for a long time. Before Big Little Lies, you've been an advocate for the Shonda shows, uh, yeah. for why the shows like, you know, or challenging why the shows like Grey's Anatomy and Scandal are not award-worthy. Um, are not nominated across the board the way, you know, the important dude shows are. Um, And I think, too, my anger and maybe even Vulture's persistence and other outlets' persistence on this show and the way that, like, this was covered is, yes… For sure. HBO's marketing and Reese Witherspoon's marketing and getting this show out there was awesome. Of course. But it was in response to the fact that male critics wrote this show off as whatever, the mom show, the bitchy bitches being bitch, bitches show, the Desperate Housewives but with A-list stars show. Um, and it was almost... I know that's a part of why I was so defiant in, in turning Laney Gossip into some kind of crusade for Big Little Lies because I was determined to... And I'll call out, like, in the New York Times, Mike Hale was the one who kind of, like, breezed it off the first episode. Whatever. I don't know. It's not that significant. I think it was, like, called trash by some male critics. And I think that's why people have, some people have responded this way. To be, like, it's almost like a ha-ha.
1: Well, you know, there's even a line in uh, in an otherwise gushingly praiseworthy article about the finale, I believe written by Matt Zollersides, that says, quote, some worried that the show would make a spectacle out of women being petty to each other. Series creator David E. Kelly, the mind behind Ally McBeal and The Practice, is a notorious fan of catfights. And even that line kind of threw me off because neither Ally McBeal nor The Practice is the kind of series that we would say holds up for the ages, right? Yeah. Uh, they were moments in time, but th- I don't think any of us would call them the golden age of television. But what they are that didn't exist back then were legal procedurals from the perspective of a woman. That was hugely innovative at the time. It was unheard of. Okay, so those particular characters got involved in cat bites and had weird, you know, whatever, bitchy bathroom shenanigans and whatnot, but those were not commentaries on women. They were commentaries on those specific women. And there was still representation that had not been seen at that time. It's hard to remember now because it's 20 years later, but Ally McBeal was this hard-ass lawyer that people loved to watch who cared very much about her career. And I, I kind of Bristled a little bit at the idea that, oh, is big on cat fights, so I don't know if we can do that, as though that's all we remember from shows that had many women of many different types right up at the forefront. I'm not, I, look, I don't think David E. Kelly is perfect or, you know, the only champion for women on screen, but he was doing it back then when a lot of other people weren't.
0: I know there are people out there who haven't started it yet, Big Little Eyes. I'm excited for you.
1: And I'm a little mad at you, too. Why didn't you start? But I appreciate that there are sometimes people who, like myself, you know, if you feel like you're overwhelmed by all the hype and you just need to watch it in isolation, but don't skip it. Don't pass it by and think that it's too much and it's too this. Watch it. You will be glad that you did, I think. Final thought.
0: When we first started watching together and we were lucky enough to have the screeners and I like harassed you and then made you watch and then we texted each other back and forth and then we were in love, you were, at the very beginning, I think after maybe episode one, you were slow to sort of warm to Celeste, to Nicole Kidman. Yes. Now that it's over. Yes. Can we go back and reassess? I want your opinion. Like, I'm dying to know.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, it was all of that was again i think i'm only continuing to unwrap the the layers of the show right celeste was underplayed almost on purpose because we find out sooner i think in the book what the what the story is about her marriage and i think you can't like her that much or can't she looks too perfect from the outside in the show and you sort of maintain that a little bit. Remember that the initial part of the show were really worried about Jane and maybe a little bit worried about Madeline because poor Madeline, I don't know why. <laughs> um, so I think it was about pacing. I think it was really smart to hold her back, have her be a little bit reserved, you know. Uh, <laughs> Kathleen sent us a quiz the other day about which Big Little Lies character are you uh, and I was in no way surprised to be assigned Reese Witherspoon because. Uh, <laughs> yep. Because, I, I, yeah, because I, I talk a lot, whether it's required or not, and uh, I wanna be in everybody's business all the time. And so I feel like they, yeah, they were intentional in making Madeline early and easy to relate to, and Celeste removed and less easy because. You want to peel back the onion. You want to learn. We don't learn about Bonnie until the end. Or maybe we only infer we don't learn about Renata until close to the end. So I thought that was really skillful. I bought it. I liked it. Oh my God, Renata. The, the, <laughs> the,
0: the makeup scene in this episode where she's getting ready, mm-hmm. her hair's pinned, and Gordon, that dick. Like, anyway… Do you agree with not, okay, spoiler people, uh, spoiler for those of you who have not read the the book, but in the book, it turns out that Gordon is fucking the nanny. Right. Um, On the show, Gordon's
1: just a jerk by himself. He doesn't have to be unfaithful. Yeah, I didn't find him that jerky. I'm also severely uh, influenced by the fact that Jeffrey Nordling, the actor, is from Once and Again which in many ways has a sort of a... There's like an ancestral debt here somewhere. Uh, once and again, is about the various arms of a blended family, about people who used to be married to the same people and the exes and the future spouses and whatnot. I loved him there. I put a lot of that on Gordon here. Uh, no, I didn't need the, the nanny scandal. I think that that was... That was something that was actually really absent from the show because we didn't need it. In the book, there's a lot more, oh, well, there was real gossip and gossip that ultimately turned out to be false. And we didn't get a lot of false gossip here or, or tertiary gossip because we don't need it. We have a full story with these women whose lives we care about. And I thought that was, I thought that was the point. I thought it was great. We also don't need a sequel. No. Like, let it be done. No, but what we need are many, many more things like this. High profile women, amazing stories, all the money in the world thrown at it. And I assume the massive success will encourage HBO and others to do more of them. So I'm very much here for that. Um, On the opposite side Mm -hmm.
0: of Big Little Lies, we have Scarlett Johansson
1: and The Ghost in the Shell.
0: Would you like to begin by gloating?
1: <laughs> well, I'm, I'm very happy to gloat at all times, but I think we should be clear what we're gloating about specifically. No, no. Take it. What you would be gloating about. Well, but I think we need context because, of course, uh, it did terribly at the box office, yes. It did… Uh, it did not do well. Well below expectations, one would say. Correct. Uh, so certainly, one would think that, you know, it didn't do as well as you might expect from a movie star, <laughs> well, from a box office draw. Okay. That said, I mean… Well, no, no, no. If you're going to say that I get to gloat, then I… Let okay. me Let me just draw it out and gloat here. No, no. You…
0: Your position was that she's not a movie star. That's… Exactly. I'm mocking okay. you. But based on box office, you can't make that, like, qualification.
1: Jennifer Lawrence couldn't open ma- passengers. That's… Utterly irrelevant. It's not the same thing at all. Of course it is. She's a movie star who couldn't open a movie. Okay, are we? I'm not even back here with you because I'm still not. I'm still not over the fact that you compared Jenny Slate to Taylor Swift. Oh. So, Rihanna and Mandy Moore. What was exciting about this, in as much as uh, it can be exciting to say that something's not doing well, um, is that. Obviously, there were a lot of people who were unsure about her casting to begin with. And by unsure, I mean thought it was utterly preposterous because it was based on… I'm looking here. Based on the uh, anime adaptation, right? Which, of course, starred an Asian woman. Yes? Sure. I mean, it it takes place in Japan.
0: Mm -hmm. Everybody there is… Japanese. Right. There's a story about her where either she gets dead and then they need (laughs) to create a computer around her and whatever. So their loophole was that, you know what, she died and they needed to build a shell and so the shell, in theory, can be anything.
1: Fine. But the point is, there were enough people who were annoyed, to say the least, at this at the first place. They weren't going. There are uh, another… Glot of people who were like, Scarlett Johansson, who? No, no thanks. Uh, Because see above, we're not a movie star. (laughs) And then… I love it when you're petty. (laughs) I'm… It is rare, but it is delicious. And then uh, you sent me an article that was perhaps the, the, you know, the people who were most annoyed about the whole thing.
0: Yes? So… Yeah, Deadline on the Weekend reported how, sh- how shitty the movie was performing, uh-huh. and they definitely referenced the whitewashing, that people were turned away, but they also looked for other reasons why the film may not have done so well, and according to marketing, it wasn't marketed in a way that people need to market movies now, and that's to say their big star, Scarlett Johansson, who they called like the pinup for the ages or whatever in there, she's not on social. So there's a big presence, according to them, that is missed on being able to promote the film on those platforms. That's where I was interested and wanted to, like, pitch this to you because I'm wondering, is that what you need now to box office a
1: movie? Here's an amazing quote. It says, this is an actress who is a millennial pinup girl, beloved by males, bracket, 62% males bought tickets to the film. With the pick's largest demo being guys over 25 at 42%, according to Comscore slash Serene Engine's post track. Uh, and she's not meeting that audience head on with a Dwayne Johnson promo sensibility. Right. Now, Dwayne Johnson was on the very first episode of this podcast, and we talked about his ability to transcend everything, to appeal to everyone, every box. Every box. Even every, you. Even me. I am here for Dwayne Johnson and I did not think that was going to be the case. Right.
0: You call it movies with numbers in the That's title, right? right?
1: Yes. <laughs> and yet, you care about Dwayne Johnson. Absolutely. Like, I'm sold. I'm here for him. I get it. So, this is really interesting because it, it implies uh, that she should be doing more on a personal level. They say she goes to all the junkets. She shows up at red carpets, but it's missing that X factor. And maybe that's why I think she's not a movie star. You know, uh, even when Scarlett Johansson was not dating random, like, French men who would turn out to publicly (laughs) divorce her, um, she didn't pal around with her paramours in public. She didn't give us much. She didn't even, like, she doesn't have a Julia Roberts laugh in a junket. You know, and I know we had lots of friends and colleagues who would try to get a laugh out of a Julia Roberts. That's a skill in and of itself. There was an extra factor there that was not about performer or picture, but the the something else in between: the personality, the celebrity. that's Is that the classic it? I guess. Or if there's not that it, give us a different it. Is this a requirement now, though? I think it's always been a requirement, don't you think?
0: No, not just to have it, that charisma, that je ne sais quoi, whatever. But at this point, is it a requirement to be on social media and to be able to be good at it? Like Dwayne Johnson does it, but he's also really good at it. He's really clever
1: at using that platform, using those tools. But you know what? It's the great equalizer in a way because lots of people use it aren't perfect at it, but points for trying. You know what I mean? Like, not everybody, uh, my favorite Chrissy Teigen is another one, right? She's great at it. She uses all the platforms to her advantage. But when people make, uh, oh, I don't know, like uh, Instagram stories that are not that exciting, you still see their kitchens and whether or not they're messy. When they, you know, when they fumble questions that they're trying to answer on Periscope, you still get... To see them talk to their assistants and be like, what was I supposed to say? There's a realness. And I don't know where we used to get that realness. Maybe there are fewer magazine 2020 type shows where people used to get all intimate and silly with Barbara Walters. But yeah, I think people want that pretense of being let in. They've always wanted that pretense of being let in. And we have fewer, you know, long form print articles about the, the weekend that we spent Cooking in Jennifer Lawrence's Kitchen. Premier used to do great articles like that. Remember Premiere? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, they didn't fold all that long ago. Like, it was only within the last 15 years. Yeah. But I think that part of the craving for social media is, A, it's that much more immediate. You can interact with them. We know all this, right? You can tweet at somebody and they tweet back at you yeah. or like your photo or whatever. But there's that idea, I'm giving you a little something. And yes, I think some of the great huge, massive stars of today are not the most beautiful. Maybe they don't even have the biggest it factor, but they engage. Lena Dunham's fame is in large part because she engages, because it's immediate. And, you know… Let me ask you this, though. What they would say, the Scarlett Johansens
0: and the whoever's of the world would say, but I need to maintain a sense of mystery.
1: Mm, yes, but so does Michelle Williams, and she gives us stuff. She and Busy Phillips, who parade their friendship like a product, take bathroom selfies. Through Busy. She has a Busy to do that with. Sure. That's a function of your best friend as, yeah. as, you know, as extension, I suppose. But she does it. Even if we only see Michelle Williams as, you know, Louis Vuitton coat hanger, she engages in those girly things behind the scenes. Yeah, we have that affidavit from her friend being like, no, she's a real person. I promise. We have no indication that Scarlett Johansson is a real person. She's never—we've never had one of those features where, uh, you know, we go out bowling with her and wind up eating pierogies drunk, mor- drunk at four in the morning. Eating pierogies drunk at four in the morning. Anna Kendrick, for all she is, sort of known to be a bit separate from a lot of the cast in *Pitch Perfect* or whatnot. She writes her amazing tweets and a filthy book about her life that is very clear that she's funny and one of the gang, even if her gang is self-selected. We're getting it in bits and pieces from all of our favorites, and Scarlett Johansson gives us kind of less than nothing, not back then and not now.
0: Going forward then, looking ahead, she does have another movie coming out this summer and it's a summer blockbuster, or they need it to be, and that's Rough Night. Mm-hmm. So that is The Bachelorette where she's the bride, they go away on a trip and then the stripper dies. Um, it's Kate McKinnon, Zoe Kravitz, Alana Glazer, Jillian Bell. Um, and so I'm really curious what she does with the feedback she gets from Ghost. And how she either tweaks it or doesn't at all for the promotion. And, and whether or not she's going to be affected by the, the presence of having to promote the film with four other women, four or five other women.
1: Well, but also when you say other women, I really think about that and I think, ah, but there's women and there's women. Uh, Scarlett Johansson is… She's been around for a while, and we always sort of think of her as an ingenue, but if we get real about things, uh, I'm only stalling a little bit while I Google her. Uh, Scarlett Johansson is in her mid-30s. She's she's actually, okay, she's in her early 30s. She's born in 1984. There are some people, especially if they're trying to be adult actresses when they are only young, if we call Ghost World her first adult role, for example, uh, she's sort of had a particular practice going for her entire adult life, this privacy, this mystery, this whatever, will she be able to change? Or in the face of McKinnon and Glazer and uh, Jillian Bell, is she going to seem like the old lady a little bit? Or the not fun one. Yeah.
0: Or the one who, and this is like a loaded charge, but this is one of those things that she also has in common with Angelina Jolie
1: does she have girlfriends? Right. Not a girl's girl. Not able to play. Like, what we need yeah. to hear is that she spent all of her time pranking Zoe Kravitz constantly. That's right. I don't think… Or that, that... everybody got together in her trailer.
0: Right. That she invited everybody over on the weekends. Or that she… Uh, whatever.
1: Those kinds of details that you're saying. Those kinds of stories. I want to see her crash, uh, you know, Alana Glazer's, like, late night interview and with some sort of… I'm fucking Matt Damon simile. Yeah. We need a thing, and I don't know that we will get it. Is that unfair of us, though, to expect a woman to, like,
0: be that? You know, when… A lot of people who would defend Angelina Jolie, because, again, this is a charge that Angelina Jolie gets, is that she doesn't have a lot of girlfriends. She's not like, you know, that was the Team Jolie, Team Aniston thing, whereas Aniston was surrounded by girls… Angelina was typically not one of those. Uh And many people said that that was unfair. Is it unfair then?
1: Look, yes, in the sense that… But I don't think we need her to be a girl's girl. I don't think that's what I'm getting at. If she is only friends with dudes and has, you know, a grand old time and looks real and is real, then I'll buy that too. Put it this way, we don't know a lot about, like, Adele's girlfriends, for example. Every single song she's ever sung is about that one dude who (laughs) fucked her over that time. Um, A million albums later, many millions of albums later, but it can be anything. It can be, you know, Emma Stone spent awards season with her brother on her arm. And it's like, oh, you're the girl with the brother. Got it. It can be any sort of realism she could also lean into that thing where, like, momming is annoying. She could be whatever she wants as long as she opened some door. And, you know, let's this be... I, we sort of started this conversation talking about social media. But I don't think it has to be about that. But when I take it back to uh, the queen of all things, Julia Roberts, <laughs> Julia left a man at the altar. Uh huh. Julia wore a shirt that said, hello, Vera. Right. She had realness yes, all the time. She maybe tried to fight down the realness, you know. Yes,
0: that wasn't even, that was like an incomplete. She left a man at the altar and took off with his best friend. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I
1: mean, yeah, but it, it, yes, it was, it was real whether or not she could help it. There was no, yeah. there's one thing to say, oh, I need my privacy, I need my whatever, but I want to believe that you're an interesting person. I think the charge that might be leveled at Scarlett Johansson right now might be that she's boring. And you say to me, is that fair? And I say, yeah, that is absolutely fair. She can, that is fair. She can have girlfriends. She can have guy friends. She can have whoever the hell she wants. I don't care. But she's boring. But Maybe th- she's boring. Maybe she's boring. And if my attention, let alone my entertainment dollars, are going somewhere… I want to be entertained and that's in all the ways. I'm not going to spend it on somebody who's boring and I'm not the only one. So when we talk about is it fair that we say this of her, I'm going to say yeah, 100%.
0: Well, that's a challenge then to Scarlett Johansson. Show your work. Are you listening? Let's see it. Yeah. You've got three months, two months, rough night. Let's see it. So to recap, we're cutting
1: the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
0: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. It makes sense that Scarlett Johansson would lead us to Tina Fey. We're talking about celebrity, female celebrities with girlfriends who've, uh, identified or made a career out of identifying or at least being identifiable for women. Um, Tina Fey, this week at the ACLU fundraiser, made some pretty, uh,
1: what, incendiary remarks? Sure. Uh, you know, maybe bluntly incendiary. Tina Fey is one of the things that's amazing. Actually, Tina Fey is quite open about the fact that when she was younger, she wasn't always, she was a bit of a catty bitch, she has pointed out. One of the reasons Mean Girls spoke to her is because she feels like she'd been on both sides of it, like she knew how to be, use her tongue and use her smarts to be cruel because that's effective, right? You can do that. You can be smarter than other people and immediately just land a zinger. And so she has talked about how she kind of used to do that uh, for evil, if you will. And then today, uh, there was a quote that was released from, yeah, from her benefit at the ACLU, uh, at which point she made a statement that was uh, certainly blunt. Uh, I don't know if it was cruel. Uh, I'm sure that there will be uh, Fox News headlines calling her mean girl, uh, like, wait for it. I should oh, they ha- have
0: already. I've looked it up. Like, on the, all those, like, conservative websites, they're attacking her already.
1: Guys, don't be lazy. You can come up with a better headline than Mean Girl. And another one
0: is, feminist Tina Fey attacks women. Um, but yeah, do you want to read the quote?
1: So, I don't even know if this was actually in a speech. Because uh, the, the article here says, partaking in a group conversation, she says… A lot of this election was turned by white college-educated women who would now maybe like to forget about this election and go back to watching HGTV. I would want to urge them to, like, you can't look away because it doesn't affect you this minute, but it's going to affect you eventually. Again, open two windows, do watch HGTV, but to not turn our attention away from what's happening.
0: And then she followed by saying, I personally would make my own pledge as a college-educated white woman to not look away, to not pretend that the things that are happening now won't eventually affect me if we don't put a stop to it. So. Damn. Okay. Well, where are we on Tina We've mentioned here before, I think a few episodes ago, I think the question we asked were, where have you been, Tina Fey? She took a
1: big break. She was everywhere in that sort of, corridor of hosting all of the things when she and Amy Poehler did uh, three Golden Globes in a row. And she had, uh, there was their movie that came out that was called uh, The The Sisters, the middle word will come to me at some point. Uh, She was around and then Tina Fey took a break. And I remember feeling a little bit like, yeah, where you been? And like, we need you a little bit. I think specifically surrounding... Issues like this uh, surrounding, you know, sort of politics and the, the heartbreak that befell a lot of women who, who really identified with Hillary Clinton, we felt her absence a little bit. I think those who've
0: criticized Tina Fey for, as you said, being like, where you been, or as we said, where you been, were saying, listen, it's not like you've avoided
1: an election before. Yeah no and I don't even think it was, right no and I don't even think it was criticizing as much as just longing you know you never feel more inarticulate than when something shocking goes down and you need something like this and so I think I wanted her to be here and be articulate when I couldn't and say the things and synthesize my feelings because That's what you want. You want somebody who's going to be, like, smart and funny and make you feel like it's all going to be okay. So, does this comment make you feel like that?
0: Well, what this comment is intended for is uh, white college educated women, Mm -hmm.
1: which essentially is her fan base.
0: Oh,
1: 100%. Yeah.
0: So… What is this doing is, does it take a a white, college-educated white woman to tell other white, college-educated white women that they need to do better? Yes.
1: Oh, 100%. Because, of course, as you say, she's their poster child. So who else are they going to listen to? And, you know, I don't want to say they and not imply that I, A, don't present as white or B, didn't go to college… And i don't want to imply that, as we all like millions of college educated white women voted for Hillary Clinton and the Democrats. We know this, but the basically the sentiment is that these women who arguably had the most to lose were a a certainly a deciding factor in the election that elected Donald Trump, who, if not now, then soon, is poised to take away women's health care and you know essentially turn the U.S. into The Handmaid's Tale.
0: Is this also not only an appeal to her fan base and, um, you know, needing a college-educated white woman to tell off college-educated white women to tell them to do better, but also a mini-admission that she too was kind of like turning her, turning away and watching HGTV and pretending that it would be okay... Is it a minor acknowledgement that Tina Fey has had the privilege?
1: I mean, I don't know. You know, that's a good question. And I think that, God, sometimes you have these conversations and you think it's all going well and then you realize there's like a hippy-dippy term coming up and you can't avoid it. Um, I feel like, I don't know about to whom Tina Fey made contributions or to whom she stumped at which political speeches or what dinner she hosted. I think she's been pretty open about being a supportive Democrat. But in terms of should she have done more on November 10th or should she have been louder or whatever, I think it comes down to, here comes the term, self-care. I think especially when we need her to be Tina Fey, when we need her to come out and say the thing that is sassy and true, Uh, funny and incendiary, maybe she has to save up to get there. And if she was as devastated as all of us were, on a sort of motivational level, if we've given her this mantle, A, it's not going to get it done. B, it's no good for her brand. If she comes out and is like, fuck, I don't know. That's not not her either, you know? So I really, I don't know what we could have asked for sooner in terms of, a louder voice. Uh.
0: Yeah, I, I hear what you're saying. And I think that for sure, it was important at a certain point for Tina Fey to sort of recede. And again, to um, store up or to replenish. Mm-hmm. I get that. The problem with Tina Fey is that Tina Fey has the privilege and has taken opportunities to opt out and tap out when the heat came. Um, Tina Fey has been criticized, and in my opinion, rightly so, for her own racial insensitivity. Mm -hmm. Um, Most of, at least the reading I did about Tina Fey in 2016, because as you said, she was relatively quiet, Mm -hmm. was about the fact that the times that she did speak up was when she wasn't speaking up. When she actually said, you know, those episodes that she wrote for Kimmy Schmidt and the Whiskey, Tango, whatever movie that was certainly criticized for its own problematic depiction of uh, people of color, she was like, whatever, I'm an artist, and I'm not defending my art, I'm not talking. Right. And so, when you go back to this statement that she made for this fundraiser for the ACLU, and she is saying, in quite pointed language, hey, college-educated white women, you can't look away anymore. I don't know. To me, I couldn't help but read it as a callback to her old, quote, excuse, and maybe a very subtle acknowledgement that maybe I can't make that move anymore.
1: Right. Um, particularly with the line that you pointed out at near the end where she says, I'm not going to look away anymore, right? Yeah. Or uh, another way of looking at it is all the times when those places in Kimmy Schmidt or... Uh, to a lesser well there there's some blackface in thirty rock or whatnot, even though she might have been able to say or been inclined to say oh it's just a joke it's clearly in jest, we clearly know I guess the world is telling her no, we clearly don't you Tina Fey, misinterpreted how much we all understand about uh, about the kind of jokes you can make and the kind of jokes that people take seriously or that the people you're making fun of exist in real life. Yeah. Yeah?
0: Yeah. And I guess, and I think Sarah wrote about this on Laney Gossip a while ago, and I, I quite appreciated it. I know that Lena Dunham is annoying to a lot of people, mm-hmm. and she has put her foot in her mouth so many times that people have just written her off. But what I appreciate about Lena Dunham is that she fails in a very public forum and is willing to learn and get better in a very public forum. Most of the time that she fucks up, she's openly said, "Okay, that was me, and I screw up again, and I'm sorry, and this is what I've done."
1: Right, and in response not, to it, yeah, and it's not. I'm sorry you were offended. Yeah, it's clearly posting something, somebody yeah. telling her, "Hey, that was asinine." Yeah, and her going, "Oh, really? How come?" Oh, oh, yes, it's all real right this is why we love Lena Dunham it's real by contrast Tina Fey if this if you're right and this is an admission a you know a mea culpa it's pretty sh- veiled relative right. to yeah ways it could be and again look Tina Fey is not on social media Tina Fey is not uh to engage in the same way. But she does do the sit-down interviews. She does do the, you know, the James Lipton's and whatnot. And that's where, yeah, we should or could see something that would be extremely effective coming from her and, to your point, that would sway a fan base that, until now, may have been guilty of looking away. Well, I mean,
0: you want to talk about Ghost in the Shell and Scarlett Johansson and Scarlett Johansson and the fact that the film got punished in part because of the whitewashing and that went everywhere but you know the Tina Fey, Kimmy Schmidt representation of Asians um, I read several articles last year that didn't really go anywhere like because Tina Fey was so beloved the mass public affection for Tina Fey almost drowned out any criticism of her But, you know, Vice wrote a great article. How is a woman of color supposed to feel about Tina Fey? It's time to stop apologizing for Tina Fey. That's Anne Helen Peterson in BuzzFeed. Um, Refinery29, the unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt racism problem and racist jokes. But I would argue that most of the people or many of the people who are listening to this podcast, that went right over their heads because Tina Fey does not get publicly vilified and crucified the way that other people do. Tina Fey has
1: a big cushion. Right. And this is one of the things where we run into problems all the time because… You can see all the defensible good things as well. Tina Fey is a vocal advocate for same-sex marriage. Yes, Tina. You know, Tina Fey is, uh, yeah, the the architect of all the ways she won't let her daughter be a shit to her. All these things, and so and people, she was such a great Sarah Palin, and oh, she, she was a great was, Sarah Palin. You know, but, but these but
0: are the things that people remember yeah. that built
1: up that cushion. But I mean, even in a social commentary kind of way, right? You know, like she has credits in the bank, one might say. And yeah, it can be easy to go, well, if they have credits in the bank, then they obviously can't go wrong. And I think that's not only dangerous for Tina Fey, I think it's dangerous for all of us, right? We all should be learning. We all should be constantly changing. Um, And I like to believe that I don't say too many terrible, boneheaded things that are totally duanacentric, but that just guarantees I will um, and yep. that I'll learn about them. You're actually thinking right now. I can see you thinking. No,
0: because I, I just read an article about it and there is like some… in the antiquities, there is like a, uh, like a god or a story or some sort of legend about like any time you say that, inevitably you'll get slapped
1: in the face. Well, exactly. Yeah. Like I expect it tomorrow or the next day or the next day. Um, I screw up all the time. We all do. We're all learning and trying to get better all the time. But the more that you admit that, I guess the more you can be part of the conversation and by saying I won't talk about it, I won't talk about my choices, they don't affect things, uh, to your point, it can be, you know, you're shutting yourself off from the idea that maybe there's some stuff to learn.
0: All right. So, I don't know. It's what? April? April? I mean, let's see what Tina Fey does. Like, what does she have coming out next? Well,
1: uh, I don't know if we know whether Sackett Sisters, which is the Casey Wilson and Busy Phillips pilot, has been picked up yet. If it is, we will be hearing from her on a consistent basis. uh, Because, of course, like Kimmy Schmidt, like 30 Rock before it, anything that comes from Tina Fey is very much all Tina Fey, all the time, and so I think there's, you know, there's a good chance that it will be these two women as, as mouthpiece for her, so it will be interesting to see how that goes. What about the Nicole Richie show?
0: Oh, yeah. What's it called? Like, Newsnight or, like, right? It was uh-huh. Nicole Richie. It was an anchor. They just, um, they presented it at uh, the, T- the Winter TCA, no? Yes, but when does
1: that start airing?
0: And we talked about it on this podcast a few weeks ago, because we didn't like how the Nicole Richie
1: character was sort of described, no? Right. Although part of that, I feel, was the writing of the article. Right. So Great News starts April 25th. So she is one of the executive producers, uh, and it was created by Tracy Wigfield, who is a writer who wrote for her and for the Mindy Project. So I would say… Yeah, you're right. She's she's gonna be out there. Saturday Night
0: Live, the four live live shows starting. I think it's April 15th. Um, yeah, they're doing like the true live. So live in New York is gonna be live in LA.
1: Um, yeah, at least one appearance. No, we uh, we have some stuff to do for uh, for the next few weeks in April. It's true. Um, okay,
0: do we need to talk about S Town? If you haven't, if you're not all the way through S-Town yet, then, um, well, I don't want to tell you to turn this off, because we want you to listen to this whole podcast, but I I can't, like, I mean, anybody who started S-Town has to have finished in a week,
1: no? We talked all about friendship and women in friendship this week, and... Uh S-Town to me it was about female friendships because uh, Lorella and I started talking <laughs> behind your back when you couldn't catch up fast enough. We left our text chain and started talking about it without you. And then when I fell behind, the two of you started talking about me, right? Well, no, we didn't talk about you. We they started, talked about me. We talked about S-Town without you because you hadn't caught up yet. Right. And I have traded emails with, you know, I have a friend who I emailed Once every three weeks or so, she's a big podcast fan, not just our podcast, podcast in general. All of a sudden, we were exchanging emails, you know, several times in 24 hours. Like, it was intense. And there's a lot to say about the story itself. Um, John B. McElmore is the kind of character that, like, stranger than fiction, right? You couldn't make him up. No, you couldn't make him up. And you you just mentioned Big Little Lies and how we
0: opened with female friendship and in many ways, S-Town is about male friendship. And I just read a really interesting article comparing the two because uh, S-Town has been called Southern Gothic. Mm -hmm. And Big Little Lies has very strong Gothic tones as well. Mm -hmm. I mean, the true spirit of Gothic in the beginning, when you're talking about, like, Mary Shelley and Frankenstein and literature from, what, the 1800s, is mannered people and the darkness underneath. Mm -hmm. the sort of, like, inherent
1: slow-moving tragedy,
0: right? That's right. Like, you have these... And typically, it was about people of means, right? Gothic. These were, like, English people or whatever who lived in castles, who lived in Mm -hmm. these manors. And then underneath, they were, like, Really, really twisted or some twisted shit went down. And you could say the same of Big Little Lies, um, that there is a gothic undertone there. Of course, I mean, it, it's obvious. These are very privileged people and underneath they have twisted lives. The southern gothic, though, um, when you come to it with, with um, S-Town is, I wouldn't say that this is a privileged community. No. But those dark and twisty themes are certainly there in the south.
1: Oh, yeah. And, and, you know, it's interesting that like any town, like any story, fiction or not, um, there's haves and have-nots. There's, you know, the sort of the favored people and the ones who are out of favor. You know, we kind of laugh at all the characters sound uh, very like definitively Southern if you're not Southern. And they sound very sort of in contrast to the interviewer. And I'll come to that in a minute. But uh, what's interesting is that, yeah, they're all among themselves being like, well, that guy's a redneck. And you're going, oh, really? That guy is? Okay. Interesting. Good to know. Thank you for telling us.
0: But, you know, I, I do think that part of it, too, is the town code. And he addresses it in the fuck it episode. Mm-hmm. That is the way that
1: people behave, right? You just kind of like, fuck it. Yeah. Um, what's the worst case scenario? Which, frankly, I think is a good way to go on. Like… There's there's all kinds of limitations and qualifiers there, but I think everybody would be better served by a bit of, what's the worst case scenario? Like, let's go. Let's ride. Um, I think, though, that that is...
0: I mean, if we're talking about the Southern Gothic and the mannerisms and the code, what John was bucking up against, what he hated and couldn't abide by, was... The, I don't know, whatever code or whatever grossness of his town that he hated, this shit town, is something that made him so angry that it twisted him up. And all those rants that he went on, objecting to the behavior of the people that he shared a community with, he called them hypocrites, he called them assholes, he called them degenerates. Yeah. Um. To me, there's also something there, like his objection to, his calling out of whatever that was, that he could not, he was not capable of living among it, and yet he was not capable of removing himself from it. He
1: also was it. You know, there's, there's, in the final episode, like we're talking about this, right? Like the host, Brian Reed, you know, points out that in lots of ways he was racist. He was misogynist. He, uh, yes. Was a giant dick, yes. um, even as he complained about Selfish. people being giant dicks. Yeah, and, and possibly incapable of a proper adult relationship. Uh, all this to say, again, complex, interesting, stranger than fiction. Um, yeah, the tragedy of I want to be a part of it, but I can't. Or rather, I, I want to be a part of, you know… A more egalitarian, more liberal society, but I can't. I won't. My question to you is this: I'm most interested in the act of the host as friend. Um, obviously, it's from Serial, uh, and as they say, and it is, you know, it, it is very, very evocative of Serial. The first season of which I absolutely was addicted to, and You know, which was really built on, hi, I'm Sarah Koenig, and I'm not really impartial anymore. I'm in this story. Brian Reed was in this story. He was a part of the story and, like, clearly became a part of the community in a really interesting way. How do you feel about that? Do you like that? Does it affect your enjoyment of the story or not? Well, I think that that's
0: one of the questions I've been trying to work through because I think that... That's why some people are objecting to this, this podcast. Could John have consented? Well, I don't… But the thing is, like… Is this a violation of a man's life? No. Uh,
1: what, how? How? I, I'm not trying to be insensitive here. Like, cue me getting myself into trouble. But he gave these interviews freely and constantly. And in fact, he reached out to uh, Brian Reed about a story that ultimately does not become the story. If you have not listened, we're sort of protecting you, but the story takes a wild turn after episode two. It is not the story it pretends to be. I agree. I mean, and you and I fall on that side of
0: of the argument, right? That… John knew exactly who he was talking to. He was a regular uh, listener of This American Life. He reached out. And frankly, I don't buy that John couldn't have worked out that bogus murder mystery himself. He was way too smart to have been hooked into that story that ended up being cleared up with really easy two questions. Brian Reed went into a pub and figured it out one night. Like, I actually don't buy that John wouldn't have been able to figure it out himself. I think there are many people theorizing that John was, like, reeling Brian Reed
1: in to do a bigger story. On John B. McElmore. That's right. That's that's, right. That is, uh, you know, narcissism or Machiavellian or amazing or all of the above. Yes. And yet, that's
0: us, right? We stand on that side, but there are many people who have written to us who have asked, so we have several emails. One of them uh, is from a longtime reader. Um, I'll call her S. And, you know, just uh, she says, I have found myself deeply ashamed for having listened to the whole thing. Um, she thinks it was salacious and a violation. Um, she thinks that, uh, for example... Um, The publication or the reading of parts of the suicide note was exploitative. Um, Vox published an article saying S-Town is a stunning podcast. It shouldn't have been made. So you may not agree with that argument, and I don't either, because I certainly, in my mind, having heard the selected pieces from the podcast in which we got to know John, I have formulated a theory myself,
1: but we can't know. No, we can't know. And so, I guess the question becomes, God, this is a big question for, you know, a late night and a long podcast, but he was lonely. He was openly lonely. He was very much in need of companionship. Does it help somebody else? Does that justify what may have been exploitative? Does that create some sort of uh, a bridge to somebody else who is listening and lonely? Is there some sort of, of posthumous tallying that, you know, would would make that okay? I don't know. I don't know the answer. But I, I – this is where it comes to – you know, it's all about echoes tonight, right? This is where it comes to – it's art. It's not quantifiable necessarily. Um who who gets to say whether or not it was right, whether or not it is good, should have been made? Not us, not Vox, uh, you know, or we do, and Vox does, and the reader who emailed us does, in as much as we all just get to have our opinions. But I don't know if there's a way that we can quantitatively tally the truth.
0: Yeah, and I think that in that, in the absence of being able to quantitatively tally the truth... What you do is you have to blindly trust your journalist. Yeah. And Brian Reed and then therefore Ira Glasses and Sarah Koenig, their professional opinion having gathered all this information and Brian having spent all this time. Is that, I mean, is that where we are now? That kind of faith in
1: your outlets? Well, look though, that's, always the way uh, this American life has done 600 and some odd episodes give or take three to five stories an episode I'm sure there are people who don't like how they came off I'm sure there are people who feel that it was exploitative I'm sure that there are stories that we love um, that don't necessarily resonate you know David Sedaris who was an early Ira glass find uh, has a story where he tried to he tried to teach his sister's parrot to say I'm sorry because he was always ripping off her life for material. Right. Um, And she just wanted her privacy, and he was always writing stories about her. Um, And then he wrote the story about how he was ripping off her life to tell these stories. Um, You know, there's always many, many sides. And so I guess then it does come back to the reader who emailed. It does come back to how you feel as a consumer. You don't look at the stuff that doesn't feel good. You don't read the stuff that feels like there's no human benefit in it. I listen to S Town and I think it will make me more thoughtful in lots of ways. It will it will lead me to ask questions I didn't ask about certain people. So for me, net benefit. Um in addition to having been entertained and and having pulled at my heartstrings and all those kinds of things. So I guess it's a, it's a case-by-case basis. I go net positive. You know, for somebody who doesn't feel good, I guess not. But I don't know if we can start saying things like, it should never have been made. I
0: asked you when I was, I think, when I was what? Almost through the second episode? No, just starting the third. And you were around the same point. I said, let's come back to this when we're done. I asked you if you thought S-Town could be a companion piece, unintentionally, but the way it's worked out to Hillbilly Elegy, J.D. Vance's book that was like one of the most talked about books of 2016. Um, I say this because both Hillbilly Elegy and An S-Town gave this Canadian girl of Chinese background a much different and quite sympathetic perspective towards people I'm, listen, I, I'm not going to Alabama anytime soon. And I, I would never want to go to Bibb County. Um, or let me clarify, I would never before S-Town have been curious about Bibb County. I would have said unfairly to be sure, but if I'm honest, I would have said, there's no one there I would want to know. And now I've listened to this podcast and I've read Hillbilly Elegy and I've, I've said to myself, well, that was wrong. And there are certainly people that I, like, I would want to know. One who I would love to know
1: and I can't know anymore. So how many more like that? Well, you know, there there are stories everywhere. There are things to be learned everywhere, which is amazing. What I didn't know at the time that you and I talked last about this and what I love now is that when you bring up Hillbilly Elegy, Hillbilly Elegy is actually an apolitical story about one guy That becomes about an entire place. It becomes about the Rust Belt and explains lots of things. S-Town, it's literally called S-Town. It's called Shit Town. Mm -hmm. It purports to be about a town. Uh But of course, it's not about a town at all. It's not about a place. It is about the vast inner mind of one man. And like the depths of one man's mind and everybody that uh, comes into contact with him. So they're almost bookends in a way. They're yeah. not the same. They don't have the same affect or even explain the same things. But that's why I'm asking if they're companions. I, I, I certainly think that they can be uh, consumed in the same mind, but I'm sure there are many more things like that. What I like about them is the... It's a fake out. It's a fake out both times in that it, it is about one thing and then another. It is about... The big and the small at the same time, the very internal and the very external. And um, if there are more projects like this, more podcasts, more books, more whatever that are both about a very, very small personal story and a bigger story, every biography ever made, but also uh, anything else, I would love to. I would love to hear them. Send them in. Tell us what you're what you're reading that made you think of S-Town or that you liked like a hillbilly elegy. I'd love to know more of these.
0: Okay, now we come to um, the final feature of this podcast. Do we need to care about?
1: Do we need to care about? So uh, this week's Do We Need to Care About comes with a story and a bit of a guest star. So I have a confession. I am a, I'm a bit of a weird sleeper, which is to say that when I'm just being woken up, A, our friend Lara has said, I forget you're an idiot when you're waking up. It's hard. It's hard to wake up. I don't like it when people just wake up and spring out of bed and are awake. And I tend to kind of like mutter things and I sort of half talk in my sleep and all these kinds of things. And so the other day when I was half asleep, I texted you about a thing that had happened at my house where my husband said to me about the, it was the exhibition Blue Jays game in Montreal. And because of course today is the the first Blue Jays game of the regular season. Very exciting. So he said... Oh, Tim Raines was on the baseball game, and in my, like, half-asleep stupor, I thought I heard him say Tim Riggins, and so (laughs) I thought for one wild moment that maybe Taylor Kitsch was at the exhibition game, and my husband was a little drunk, and he said, no, sorry, honey. He made shitty movies, and now he's done. And look, he's no expert, and he was drunk, but I just had this fear. Is Taylor Kitsch done? And I texted you, yes, he has three movies coming out this year, but is he done? Do people still have goodwill for him?
0: I think they have goodwill for Tim Riggins.
1: Yeah. But
0: mm-hmm. I don't know how long that lasts for. I don't you know. You know, like, because yeah. they just want to see him as Tim Riggins. Right. I mean, how much do
1: you care when Taylor Kitch is not Tim Riggins? Well, look, I wanted to care about other projects. They were hard to care about. I really thought I would care about True Detective 2. <sighs> it was... Didn't you think? Didn't I you really hope? wanted
0: to care. We, I mean, listen, it wasn't just him, right? It was Rachel McAdams, Vince Vaughn, Colin Farrell. Like... It was all my favorites, yes. But it was uh, really... And he was in, in a show that was appalling. He stood out as like... I'm talking about Taylor Kitsch. The, like the baddest. As in
1: not... Like he was terrible. Oh, yeah. Like, it exposed him. And, you know, none of the other choices up to now, John Carter and Battleship or anything of the above, have been that exciting. Now, there is something on his IMDb that looks deeply exciting to me. He has uh, two movies announced, uh, a movie called Granite Mountain, Yawn, Uh, I mean, maybe it's great, but the poster has a big fire on it. And uh, something called American Assassin, which arguably is also yawn. But there's a TV movie announced uh, called Waco,
0: where Mm.
1: Taylor Kitsch plays David Koresh, uh, who is, of course, was the leader of the Branch Davidian cult in Waco, Texas. He, you remember, in 1993, he had that... It was a standoff with the the FBI, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes. And it was like the whole world was watching. It was fascinating. Taylor Kitsch can do this. Uh, So they've picked, they've cast Taylor, like they've cast Taylor
0: Kitsch to play. And by all accounts, David Koresh, I mean, he was a leader of the cult, which means all those adjectives, charismatic, right? Oh, yeah. Irresistible, charming, manipulative. Exactly. Brilliant. And and then, like, my next question is,
1: Taylor Kitsch? So, okay, who who's directing this? John Eric Dowdy is directing. Uh, John Eric Dowdy's credits… Uh... Okay, I'm more impressed by Michael Shannon is in
0: this. So... Okay, we're talking about Taylor Kitsch. No, but if, if Michael Shannon is taking
1: on the project, I'm sorry, but then I'm like, okay, I'm interested. Oh, man. But that's sad on its own. Like, we're… It, you should be interested because Taylor Kitsch is taking
0: it off. Now I'm, not... I'm worried about him because Michael, Chan- like Michael Shannon can destroy you in a scene
1: if you don't bring it. But David Koresh <laughs> is a great, great, amazing, interesting role. And unlike every sort of, you know, tough guy with a gun that he's been categorized as before now maybe almost misinterpretations of who Tim Riggins was, uh, a lazy man's idea of who Tim Riggins was, I like the idea that what we're tapping into here is the charisma, is the eye sparkle, is the sort of tightly coiled humor that the Tim character never really got to let loose. So there's hope? I I mean, there's hope if if he chooses more interesting projects, but... This is one project in a sea of projects that look really generic. So I want there to be hope, but I don't
0: know. You're optimistic. You're more, you've always been more optimistic than I am. I'm, listen, I think it's great if someone saw the casting director um, and the people putting together this TV movie have seen something in Taylor Kitsch that could play David Koresh. Great. I'm intrigued. But on the flip side, as I said, Michael Shannon I mean you got to stand up in if you're in a scene with Michael Shannon. You haven't have you seen the Superman movie with Henry Cavill? No. Okay. What happens to what happens to Henry Cavill opposite Michael Shannon is terrifying. Okay, but this is the
1: this is David Koresh. He is the whole movie. You don't think that Superman, what do you think Superman the movie was? <laughs> Not that exciting. Superman's too clean and boring. <laughs> okay. Um no, I, I agree with you. There's… I just think you were more hopeful uh, five minutes ago before you found out Michael Shannon was in this project. Yeah. I'm just saying. It's Michael Shannon. Should he be doing something else? Should he be choosing some other projects? Are there roles that he maybe secretly is not getting that would help? Or is this just where we are? Do you still care about Taylor Kitsch? A variation on do you care about Taylor Kitsch or do we need to care about Taylor Kitsch? Or do you just care about Tim Riggins? Let us know. Thanks for joining us. Ask me about Shonda Rhimes next week. And until then, show your work. And check us out on iTunes and Google Play. See you next week. Bye. For listening.